Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 4 of Wordplay. This week we are featuring two Halloween-related events. Tonight, the Winthrop Student Alumni Council will be hosting a round of ghost tours in Tillman Hall. You can purchase tickets online at Eventbrite and the tours will run today until 11.30pm. Masks are strongly recommended for this event and you can expect to hear some of Winthrop's most haunting stories. The second event is called Candy All Around the World and it will be in the Diggs main lobby tomorrow at 11am noon. The Global Perspective Academic Success Community will be talking about different types of candy from around the world and free samples will be available. What a treat! Now, let's get into the content of the fourth episode. Joining me today is Dr. Ralston, head of the Writing Center here at Winthrop. How are you doing, Dr. Ralston? I'm good. I'm glad to hear that. So today, our big uh, Halloween special, horror and everything that horror entails. So, one of the first questions is, and we were discussing this uh, the other day in class, but why do you think it is that we'd like to be scared? I mean, there are, I think there are many ways to kind of look at why we enjoy being scared. I think, as I mentioned before, Freud would say that, you know, we all have this kind of death drive, and so we're just kind of constantly working toward that. There's something certainly that's happening psychological, so I think you could employ some psychoanalysis to that. Um, and I definitely think it does help us like work out something, whether that's how we might respond in a scary situation or it helps us to face our particular or specific kind of fear. But more than that, I think certainly in American culture in particular, there are certain ways you can read horror movies as putting a mirror up to ourselves and showing us what it is that we are really afraid of. And I think if you look at horror films from other countries, you kind of see some differences there in what it is as culturally like we're afraid of in different ways so I think with horror you're getting all of these kinds of things simultaneously potentially right in, in the best of circumstances with like a really good horror film or horror story well I was reading about this yesterday when I was doing some research on this and it seems like just kind of a hypothesis I was having in my the back of my mind is that if Aristotle said that like a tragedy is supposed to kind of leave a, a, a bit of a catharsis at the end of, yeah. uh, of you know, we, we, we have an emotional let out, right? And I think that's kind of with horror too. You can imagine that for a long time, and even today, life can be a little humdrum. It's a way of like experiencing something vicarious, right? That I'm in danger, but without actually being in danger. Right, it's, it's a push to your endorphins without actually having to be in danger, or for some people who might have experienced some kind of violence or danger or trauma in their life, maybe that's like working through something. I also think depending on the genre or, or sort of sub-genres or tropes that you're dealing with in horror, a lot of horror is, is actually about grief and loss, particularly if you're talking about sort of those haunted, if you're in the sort of haunted trope, which can be genuinely scary as well. But there's also a lot about grief, right? There's been some kind of tragedy, so people have had to move to the middle of nowhere or, you know, what those kinds of things. It's a, it, there is a very much a coming to terms with, and sometimes that's a family tragedy, a personal tragedy. But it seems to me that in many, many cases, especially like I said, with like haunted stories, you're really dealing with kind of grief more than fear, which I think is really interesting. And some of those, some of those stories, some of the really popular stories of late, I think have been within those kinds of genres or like trying to protect children, right? So you do have this kind of very much concern over a child's well-being, And certainly with something like you take like Poltergeist, which revolves around that, you take the Exorcist, which revolves around like 
there's concern with this person's like soul. And so there's a lot there once you get into really analyzing it and looking at what horror can kind of provide for us as an outlet, like you said, there's a lot there that maybe you wouldn't think of on the surface. And I think that it has a lot to do with violating boundaries. Cause I, I noticed that as a trend in horror, right? It's always about violating what we consider or think is inviolable, right? You know, I think that one found like the found footage about, oh, what was it? The, uh, this, it was a big series about like, it was like a couple and they would have like the, the camera set up. Paranormal, Paranormal activity. activity. Paranormal activity. And I think the reason why that kind of resonated with so many people was because, you know, the most sacred part of most people's lives are in their bedrooms, right? right. This is where we're supposed to feel safe, right? right? In my bed. If I can't feel like, you know, that's the inviolable, right? Suddenly, right. you know, someone can get me. And you see that with like the purge too, right? The suburbs, nice, you know, yeah. rich neighborhoods suddenly overcome with people with violence. And it certainly ties in a lot with pop culture. But those like those are just a few examples of late. But what got you interested in the horror genre? So I mentioned before that there is this kind of trope or, or subgenre of, of like the haunted, right? And so my interest, I think, really entered when I was a kid and was interested in ghost stories. My, I was luckily lucky enough to have many matriarchs in my family still alive throughout my life. So I had two great grandparents who were in my life for a very long time. And so the women in my family, when we were shelling peas or they're like, you know, peeling shrimp or whatever we did sort of around the kitchen table would inevitably kind of turn to sort of telling stories and ghost stories. Uh, and so that was sort of my, my entry point. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, and that's, I still probably have a deep affinity for for horror that involves ghosts. And for me, I think it's it's interesting to see what way, you know, how different storytellers are working with the the sort of idea of the supernatural, but I think just my interest in mysteries and the unexplained as a kid really opened, I think opened an entryway into that developed later into more more genres, I guess, of, of horror and that kind of thing. But it definitely started with the ghost stories. Coming as a millennial, my first uh, experience with being scared, probably like as with a lot of people in my generation grew up like watching cartoons, but one in particular was called Curse the Cowardly Dog. And that show had some really <laughs> trippy stuff in it, you know, like, but as I I grew older I kind of like delved more I really love scary stories I loved like the, the thrill of it right and just kind of the, the kind of horror aesthetic that especially um, this fall being one of my favorite seasons of the year and Halloween how that all associated with it I love the decorum and everything with it and that's just kind of uh, metamorphosized from there do you have any favorite films or works of literature that come to mind so by far my favorite scary story writer is Shirley Jackson, who wrote The Haunting of Hill House, as well as this uh, very creepy uh, sister story called We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which if you haven't read, it's great. Most people have read Shirley Jackson because they've read The Lottery or something like that, but she sets incredibly atmospheric stories. And I think that when it comes to like a literary text I'm reading, if I want to be scared by something I'm reading, if it's gonna tend to be in sort of like a thriller or horror genre, like that atmosphere is so important to me as a reader. I think that might be also true of films, although I think you can set atmosphere much more quickly in a film. Um, my favorite horror franchise is Halloween and I just, there's something so, there just so many things come together in that, especially in the very first film. 
um, where you, the viewer, are able to see much more than the than the would be victims, and also that you don't. There is the story that's happening, but you also don't know when like Michael Myers is going to pop out of anywhere, and so you're just you have this kind of tension. And then of course Jamie Lee Curtis's character is you know the first kind of champion, like the the first sort of survivor. And so I remember the first time I saw Halloween, I was probably like twelve, and it was part of this kind of movie marathon of different sort of scary films and I thought like what is this it seemed I think it actually came out in in the 70s before or right around the time I was born so I watched it a little bit later in my life I also love and maybe this is because I love Halloween I also really love Scream as a franchise and I think that's because it's doing a lot of really interesting things culturally that's probably like the kind of pinnacle of bringing in really comedic aspects of and making fun of horror as a genre. But yeah, I like a lot of the stuff from the, a lot of the stuff that was happening in the 70s and 80s, that that kind of horror. I really appreciate the old, like, classics. Um, One of my favorite films, and I know we've talked about this before, is The Granddaddy of Them All, Doctor, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Oh, right, yep. Mm -hmm. I actually rewatched that uh, last night. It has, like, the surreal atmosphere to it and kind of, like, seeing through the eyes of an insane person, right? That's been sure. that's been a, a trope ever since that a lot of people have explored. But there's just something kind of disquieting, especially, like, with the constraints of it and how it, like, manages to do so much with so little. And sometimes, a little, you know, little is better, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes you don't need, like, a whole bunch of, like, fancy designs. And, of course, mm-hmm. we want to see the, the gut, blood and guts splatter everywhere when Michael Myers, you know, cuts someone to pieces. But... Sometimes, you know, not seeing the, mm-hmm. the horror is even uh, better, in my opinion. But in, your, but in your own opinion, what makes a good horror story? What are some of the element, most crucial elements of a good horror story? I think, for me, I want there to be something unexpected. That might be who a victim is. It might be who, like, is the perpetrator. I like when, whether I'm watching it as a film or reading it, I like that kind of does something more than just like you said like blood on the screen so anything that kind of um, comes across and can be sort of surprising and I think a really good example of that that is still a favorite of mine is the don't even know when this came out but the film The Others which has a kind of now it doesn't have to be like a giant like twist I do think that like there can be too many twists but for me, and if you haven't watched The Others, you should absolutely go. It, it is a ghost story-esque. It, it is sort of in that haunted genre. But it is one of the really great, there's true scary moments. Um, it's reminiscent of Hitchcock in a lot of ways of kind of like jump scares. And there's a real subtlety to it and a quietness to it. But it's also really genuinely scary without kind of showing a lot. It, it all takes place in kind of one location. And so when the reveals and the twists kind of happen, it feels very unexpected. I think that like of all like and it's not specifically horror, but one of the shows that's always left an indelible impression upon me is Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone. Yeah. Because even though a lot of that sometimes they're like good episodes that have like happy endings, and notice that a lot of it has a way in like twisting like our expectations into something, you know, quite horrific to way of seeing things. But he manages to do it with a lot with a very limited budget, but with great acting, and you know, this like not a whole lot of special effects, if very little at all. But of course that what makes a good, you know, is something that we can captivate and I, I very much believe that it's character driven but of course there are always the cliches about what makes a bad horror film and I'm sure we know many of those mm-hmm. yeah and I think 
that so one of the things that's really great about something like Scream as a franchise is it's taking those cliches and you know really using them in a purposeful way or pointing pointing them out as cliches right so one example is the killer isn't really dead when you think that they're right, dead right. right like that's one of those kinds of things and so there are ways maybe you can work those cliches but I think you have to have something to as a reader or as a viewer you have to have something to identify with you have to have something to kind of hold on to and I do think maybe that that is why I still really like those stories that fall into this kind of haunted atmospheric place because I do think, you know, sometimes our own grief or our own insecurities or our own baggage is the one thing that we don't really want to face. And I think a lot of those stories, like those ghost stories, are really kind of working working that out. I just recently, and it was very late, uh, late to the game, but I just recently watched the Netflix series, The Haunting of Hill House. Um, I was rereading a bunch of Shirley Jackson's stories and so I wanted to watch the next Netflix show. And it's all about most of that. I mean, there's genuinely scary, scary moments. You are absolutely scared. There's some pretty terrifying things that happen. But it's also about family trauma and, uh, and about grief and kind of dealing with that. And so I think that if you, even if you're working within something that feels cliche, like is there something that you can do with it that's a little bit new? I don't know. I also have to admit that I kind of love a bad horror film. I mean, I, there's something, there can be kind of something campy or just predictable about it in a way that you feel like let in on the joke, which is also, I think, something that Scream did. But you have to think about like, what is your purpose, I think, too, in watching the film? Like, do you want to be genuinely scared? Do you want to kind of make fun of something? You know, you can kind of like hate watch things. Do you want, some, you know, do you want kind of a group experience where you're watching a film with other people? Um, I think one of the most terrified kind of moments, I've seen The Shining before and read the Stephen King book and yet watching it with a group of my friends when I was in my 20s and they had never seen it before, I was more scared at that watching than I had been kind of watching it by myself because I think I was feeding off of their reactions. So it can kind of depend on, you know, what it is, like why you're watching the film and so you can have some fun with a bad horror film but at the end of the day it's like you know have you gotten out of it what you wanted to get out of it and I think you're probably more likely to forgive something that's two hours of your time in viewing than reading something that has taken a lot longer and so you may not forgive the tropes or cliches in writing as much as you might as a viewer. Right. It's just like there's a there's a certain level of fun with certain movies that you just love to kind of laugh at it, right? Because it's like, let's split up, gang. Right. 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 And you know exactly what's gonna happen next. Kind of like a horror comedy mix. Always can always can be fun with like the cliches. Of course, we kind of touched on this briefly before, but like horror and pop culture, I think they are intrinsically linked. What are they our affliction of our fears, like our deep fears as a society? And if so, what does that say about us, do you think? Yeah, I definitely think that they are. I think you could look at different time periods um, and look at sort of the, what are the horror films that are kind of coming out in this time period? So you have Dracula, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and Frankenstein, the movies, all coming out in a pretty close time period in the, in the 30s. So people at that time were seeing what real violence and what real kind of mechanized at least to that point, warfare did 
And so to be able to be scared by a monster, which felt maybe a little bit unrealistic, you know, to be concerned about werewolves, to be concerned about something that wasn't a kind of real realistic, and you're not seeing a lot of violence, you know, the monster itself, particularly like in in Frankenstein, kind of takes on a life of its own. So these stories that, you know, show up in the 30s with these kind of monster movies allow you to place that fear or, right, like purposely kind of displace it. And you can look at, you know, fears like uh, any kind of film or, or the beginning of even sort of urban legends that start to happen in the 50s and 60s where more women were going to college and so they were leaving for the first time. So there were all these kind of cautionary tales that tended to get attached to different uh, different films. So I definitely think that you can look at time periods and sort of say, you know, what are people kind of flocking to? Um, so in the 70s, you have girls being babysitters. So there's like a whole slew of these kind of like babysitter movies. Like there was a ton, there were a ton of them. Like When a Stranger Calls, and, and some of that is also not just meant to kind of fear, put fear into people who are doing the work of babysitting and taking care of kids, but it, it is reflective of the time. It's like, do you know where your kids are? Do you know what they're kind of doing? I mean, I grew up in the 80s and I'm kind of convinced that there were definite periods of time that my parents didn't know that we were like riding our bikes in the woods or whatever. So I think, yes, definitely it's it's very much a reflection of our fears at any given time. And sometimes they kind of rise to the surface and you can sort of see what it is we're really afraid of. And I think it's interesting how you see the transition and like you, you it started with like the 50s where it's like, um, monsters and such a thing like um, what comes to mind is that movie it where it's like it's a giant radioactive ant right you know fears about cold war you know potentially harnessing something that we can't control and the for like consequences that we don't foresee right but and then it shifts to zombies in the 70s and other things like this and you you mentioned the babysitter you, like i grew up with like especially with that like you know oh you know i'm coming soon it's what you know the baby get and it turns out he's in the attic the whole time right. right like i heard that as a kid like when i was five and that was like my grandma's way of telling me you know just be aware you know be aware of your surroundings but um i think the zombies and like a friend of mine pointed out this is like it's kind of like a um a reflection of perhaps of a rebellion especially because it started in the 60s with um romero's night of the living dead and then moved into the 70s kind of a rejection of the consumerist culture because a lot Definitely. of the time right, it gets associated you know just mindlessly following the crowd right you know because there was a big counterculture at that point you know and reflects and it kind of went into a lull in the 90s you didn't have any zombie movies and now it's coming mm -hmm. back as more people are gaining more awareness of like the the downfall of our capitalist society you could take it from a marxist angle yeah i mean and now you know i think about this sort of you know with romero i think it is i, I don't remember all because the order of all of them but is it Dawn of the Dead? I think it's Dawn of the Dead. Like, literally takes place in the mall. Right, yes. Like, the, you know? And then you kind of look at something like 28 Days Later, which is about a disease. And so, like, and now that we have actual yeah, pandemics, yeah. I think there's a lot that you can kind of map there. It's interesting to talk about it, because when you think about zombies, you think of them as a resurgence. And there was, like, definitely a resurgence, right? With, like, the TV show The Walking Dead. And, you know, I think... The Walking Dead is about what you do to survive. I mean, a lot of horror films are like, what is it that you'll do to survive? How do you survive? And you have to sort of lean on other people and you have to trust other people and what happens when the government collapses, and, right? And these right. were some kind of, you know, not necessarily conspiracy type founded fears. I mean, th there were times when we had government shutdowns. And so I think there is maybe the best 
horror genre can do is to both be kind of unrealistic enough that we can displace that fear, but also based in enough reality that it feels meaningful in a very particular kind of way. So I think there's a lot kind of literally and figuratively that you can, that you can kind of look at and you can see why, why some subgenres sort of go away and then, you know, kind of have spikes and, and, and come back. That is very true. Growing up, one of my favorite shows to watch was Ghost Adventures. There was a whole slew of like these ghost hunting yeah. things, right? They're, like and a, a resurgence, very and, popular. Like, yeah, and the paranormal and everything that was going on. And I think that a lot of the reason why I was so captivated by that show was the like the settings, because sometimes like um, the most memorable episode to me was like when they go to this plague island or it's like where they used to put plague victims as kind of like a quarantine and they were like looking around for like ghosts and I'm like you know like it's like you know even though it's like a mockumentary like, I don't even know if you're a mockumentary because I don't know like they actually admit that it's fake or not but at least they're you know trying but like it's a documentary and I'm not there you know that's a genuinely unsettling settings and I'm and so what makes some settings more you know, creepy, like graveyards, crypts, sort of things like this. There seems to be kind of like a, a running, like or haunted houses, you know, abandoned houses. Why, why is it that there are certain settings that kind of trip that alarm bell in our minds? I think, especially when you, so when you talk about places that would be like abandoned or have like a creepy, spooky sort of feeling, it's often places that you aren't supposed to be, right? Or feel like you're not supposed to be there. So with abandoned buildings, for sure, like sometimes on those shows in particular, people are actually trespassing to get into some of the spaces. With the house that like looks dilapidated from the outside, I mean, I think it's all about the perception and creating the like mood and the atmosphere and of course something like a cemetery or graveyard where you know the dead bodies are there right there's and again if we're trying to reconcile for ourselves our mortality you're pushing yourself toward that at the same time you're trying to reject it so one of the french theorists julia Kristeva, working off of freud calls that the abject where you would look at something like maybe you would see a dead body or you would see it um, on a TV show, like a forensic TV show. And you would say like, oh, that's not me. That's that that body. Right. Is is something else. I am not that. And so I think there's sometimes with with this sort of genres of fear, um, whether you're talking about like a spooky story or something that is like really, really horrifying and, and, and terrifying. There's that's just like you're inching just a little bit and a little bit more closer to that. So any settings that feel like decay, that feel like they're separated somehow from your like everyday existence or something that in the daylight seems fine, but all of a sudden at night it takes on a kind of different appearance, right? And so it's like this juxtaposition between the living and things we don't understand, the explained that I can see in the daylight and the shadows that I'm not sure where they come from, right? It's that kind of both psychological moves that happen, but also ooh, like, am I supposed to be in this space? It feels, and you're just kind of inch back and forth between those those environments. And so if you have a, a story that's taking place where some of it needs to take place in daylight, some of it, right? Like, you right. need both of those things. I think you need the setting in its sort of everydayness, and you need it when there's this potential for you to have to kind of go through something psychological or, or you're going to have a reaction, a psychological reaction. Sometimes 
physiological, right? Because the heartbeat racing, right, you know, right, all right. those kinds of things too. I think that like, I, I love how we try to ascribe agency to the dead, right? Like there's a widespread belief in ghosts that there are spirits and that people have energy and like agency even after, you know, they've passed away, right? And I think that that plays a lot into like why we find graveyards so like unaccessible because on some level, you know, on some rational level, I think most people will say, well, you know, they're just dead bodies. I don't care, right? You know, you could put them anywhere. But on another level, we also tend to see them as, like, sacred places, right? Yeah. And that, like, there's there's a certain energy to it and that, sure. you know, uh, violating, like, you're not supposed to be there, right? You're not supposed to be uh, disturbing the dead. And, you know, the, whole, the cautionary tale is, you know, they might come back. And I think that really, like, it kind of works into, like, the whole element of suspense is that you never know like when certain actions might lead you to your doom, right? That's And I think that's what that goes into the whole uh, suspense. Or am I off the mark there? No, I think that's true. I think, I think the best stories are going to try to work within that tension and expectation. Like I said, again, the sort of tension of your everyday versus like, things that scare you. Um, working within, is this a place that is sacred where we honor right the dead i mean all cultures have some kind of death ritual um and again not to sort of continue to belabor the point but like that is really meant for the living it's meant to help us grieve it's meant to help us right like that's the reason some people really want to have an open casket they want to have to acknowledge that the person isn't really the person right anymore and i think with the unknown there's so much we don't know right about what happens like after more like after our mortality after our time is over and so that i think is why the ghost right, the ghost story makes sense we don't have a way to you know maybe we want to believe that a soul can kind of stick around maybe we want to believe that people are looking over us it's part of sort of death rituals i think the whatever it is like your belief system afterwards and so Knowing that, I think you can create a lot of suspense and tension when you're in those kinds of spaces that have multiple purposes or that kind of serve, you know, the, the, the idea of it serving both the living as a spot to grieve, but also like the dead as a like collecting point, right? When I think about the cemetery, it's just where the skeletons or the ashes or whatever it is sort of lie. But it's, it's the, whether it's a cultural belief or a personal belief, I think when when you know that it is a space right. of, and and also especially if it's on like a very old graveyard or a very old cemetery, I'm thinking of like these places that have been around. I mean, I think that's also the thing kind of with the atmosphere of houses and stuff too. It's like, this has been a long, this was around For so much lot. longer before, like so much longer than I was, right? This building or this, you know, um, monument or this. And you kind of get the same. You kind of get the same feeling here in this place. You know, this, these buildings were along way before any of either of us were yes. around, right? Yeah, you know? campus buildings are pretty creepy when no one else is around. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I feel very disconcerted sometimes in Hillman because <laughs> it's like it's a little too quiet. And I think that like the cognitive dissonance is what it is, right? Because we, yeah. we we think that there are certain settings. For example, like if you saw a big open courtyard, like a digs, for example, and there was no one there, right? You know, you're a little off put because like where are where you know there's usually a lot of people here. Where are they? Right. Right. And so like it's the same thing. Uh, the inability though to kind of like the human mind's inability to understand the cessation of consciousness and like agency after death. And I think that that's that paradox of humanity. You know, realizing that we're alive, that but at some point that we won't be really kind of like that primal primal fear right because we want to want to live is the 
driving like a true driving tension of not just horror but really most of most everything people do and i think freud had a really big point that you know why does the man in his 40s get the the nice sports cars because one day you know it's kind of like the death year you know i'm one day i'm gonna get old and i can't enjoy it anymore right and then, I'm gonna, and then i won't be here and you can't take it with you right, right That's exactly what they say. but crafting good characters people that we can relate to in a horror because you know like if if it's if it's too unsympathetic right as a character i don't care what happens to you i hope that the i hope, I hope that the serial killer gets you right right but sometimes though i think that writers and like they kind of take the lazy way out and just say well it's just you know just an every guy right like like a little too generic what makes a character more sympathetic in a horror like setting besides just being an everyday man yeah actually i actually think that probably in horror you really have to especially if you're writing it you really do have to do some work to create a character that is going to carry all the way through so we have to at least want to know what happens to the character right to keep reading or to keep watching I think it kind of depends on what the act I, th I think that it kind of has to go hand in hand with sort of the action of and other elements of the story so when I think about when I think about protagonists like okay so I'll go to scream because it's sort of on my mind and so we know once we meet Sydney who's our final girl in scream we know that like there has been this I think the best thing that they ever did was create this sort of backstory for her of like this tragedy of her mother's death and that that sort of grief and it's been a year and now like sort of right the killings sort of ramp up and so as enjoyable or fun um, as some of that movie is and as funny as there some of those scenes are and at the center of it is this girl whose mother doesn't is not around anymore um, and so you have this like grieving teenager who's father's relative pretty absent and feels very much kind of alone and so if we can't care about what happens to her nothing else works in that movie that the humor doesn't work like nothing nothing else kind of works in that and I would say that that's probably true of most of the protagonists although you sometimes have protagonists that end up being villains or you end up loving right the monster in ways that you were unexpected so I'm thinking psycho the like really I guess our viewpoint is really through Norman who I mean hope this is not like a 40 how old is that movie year old spoiler um but like who is the villain like from, but but it's his perspective and I think that that's something Hitchcock really did very well was sort of skew your expectations of like who it is that you're rooting for who your protagonist is it's something Stephen King does really well in many of his novels like the the person who's story you're following or the person whose eyes you're seeing it through is not always who you want to survive in the end which is a really interesting kind of spot to put your reader or viewer in if you're right working this whole kind of story around them and whatever it is you want your reader to feel about the the protagonist or the main character it has to really work so if you're creating an unlikable character you know right. whatever happened like everything else around that has to work or you know, you're going to close the book, stop the film, walk out, you know, whatever right. it is you do. One of the, like, one of the most memorable movies, and it's not explicitly horror, but it certainly was scary to me when I watched it, was uh, 2006, the Coen Brothers' uh, No Country for Old Men. Oh, yeah. That movie was really dis unsettling just because of the, not really so much the, the enormity of the violence, but the... Uh, 
clinical manner in which mm-hmm. it was taken. But yeah. but for our hero, Llewellyn Moss, and spoilers alert for anyone who hasn't watched this movie, he finds a cash flow, like a like a um a briefcase full of money. Right, that it turns out is being uh, rigged, but you know he had a choice to leave it there, but he decides to come back, and that is the reason that he's found out by this persona of a like you know indelible evil that's coming after him at all times and killing whoever gets in his way and can't be stopped. Right now, that's that's pretty scary, right? Yeah. But but what makes me so sympathetic is that even though Llewellyn's actions you know doom him in the end, you know that was like a moral thing to do at the same. It was a more immoral and a moral thing to do because it's like if I were in that situation, what would I do, right? And to think. That that, you know, well, if I made that decision, I guess I'd be dead now, right? Yeah, I mean, I think sort of, I do think there are ways, and the Coen brothers is a good example, because they're just really fantastic storytellers, where you can do something, in, in other hands that might not have worked, right, playing with that sort of morally gray area. And I do think that, I do think one of the things about horror is it allows you to, I mean, that isn't to say you don't end up having these kind of stock characters, kind of like you talked about before, like cliched characters, because um, you certainly do. There is definitely a trope of like, okay, let's have the athlete and like the girl, the quiet girl. And, you know, I think there are movies like Cabin in the Woods, also another really great example of a truly scary movie, but that is very much playing with all of those tropes in so many different ways has fantastic twists and ultimately kind of takes a weird turn and you're like, okay, I didn't expect to end up here, but here we are. And so like really plays with that of like stock characterizing of, of those, of the individual people. And it makes sense about halfway, probably even less than halfway through the movie once you're sort of let in on what's really happening in that film. But I don't know, I'm trying to think back to some of those early and even early ones, sort of the Friday the 13th, the slasher kind of films definitely have some of those stuck characters, but you also either have to, you either have to want the people to survive or you have to want them to die, right? It's like one of those things has to happen because otherwise like, what is it you're there for? Although I will say in those films, it seems like Jason and Friday the 13th and Freddy Krueger and Nightmare on Elm Street start to become like the characters that of like the reason that you're sort of watching and it's not so much these other people right right um, and, and that's like and this is like the great lead into the next point is like the monsters what like like especially for like Freddy Krueger right yeah. or Jason or Hannibal Lecter great villains right you know even though they yeah. do horrific things there's a like, yeah. there's an inner part of me that kind of feels guilty like I'm rooting for you man I want you to like let's yeah see, and let's I mean see. and I think I think with Jason so for example I I'm trying to think and it's been a really long time there were so many of those movies but I do think that. There is a sense where those characters feel really unlikable, like they are kind of intruding on this on this sort of camp sort of space, you know. I don't know. Freddy has an Freddy. Freddy and Friday the Thirteenth has an evolution. I mean, he starts out. You watch some of those early ones; they are genuinely, genuinely scary. There's a point I think where he gets to do these like sort of comedic lines, and it starts to get to this like really sort of strangely campy performance that uh, now I can't think of the actor's name. Anyway, that he does, he sort of turns it into. Then there becomes like Halloween costumes, <laughs> you know, right, like, right, right, where you can dress up like Freddy or be Jason for Halloween. So yeah, I think I think it's interesting. I think what. There are many reasons why we might kind of root for the monster if we dislike the other characters or if we just, I don't know, like you, you, there are so many of them that you kind of come to, I don't know, have an affinity for it, like or an affection sort of for them. And sometimes we just, 
identify with the monster. Sometimes I think there's a part of us that's like, yeah, there's this darkness inside of me too. Or there's like, maybe I do wish that I could live out and harm someone who's said mean things. You know what I mean? Right, I think right. it's like sometimes we have this kind of if I could get back at all like the, yeah. mean, the mean things that people have done yeah. you know, to me, like you know, if I were Jason, you know, you wouldn't be yeah. saying that to me. Right, 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 right. 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 And it's like uh, I don't know. So I think sometimes it, it kind of depends. Like, are you where you kind of find yourself in any given moment? I think too, like. With something like Saw, which turns into this really weird sort of critique on how far people go for, right? Like, for to survive. In the first one, it's just kind of like survival. But, like, you, people started to really identify much more with Jigsaw. Really hate the people who are kind of going through this sort of, these torturous experiences. As that franchise went on, you, like, he was sort of addressing, like... Moral, health, yeah, yeah, moral mor- morality, issue, like right. the healthcare industry, you know, like the drug industry, you know, unfair kind judges, of, stuff like this, yeah. right? And so, on some level, you know, it's like this is justice, you right, know, you, you right. are reaping exactly what you sow. Yet at the same time, you know, they're not giving a chance like for redemption either, right? So yeah. it's like you know, so we can't. He's never truly a hero in that regard, right? Absolutely not, right? Um, and especially like with someone like Dracula, which was like the first like big monster yeah. that ever came out, right? It was seen as like a vi- you know, especially in Victorian society, like oh, oh, you know, Dracula is violating the women, and yeah. you know, like this everything about Victorian purity and everything. Else. But then it became a sex symbol, right? Right. Right. You know, it's sexy. It's sex- you know, like to. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's sort of that. I guess you chalk that up a little bit to like uh, Lugosi's, you know, portrayal of that, um, which is kind of both seductive and violent simultaneously. I mean, then how kind of other people, you know, kind of sort of end up playing that or or playing playing with that obsession. Yeah, I don't know how he came to like really fear vampires to being like wanting to be desired by vampires or like wanting i mean i can't think of many people i'd want to like live on earth with forever um or have to kind of i mean i think um while it may not really fall into the true i don't know where you kind of put some of this but something like Anne rice's interview with the vampire both the book and and the film i do think work out some of those ideas of like think this through all the way right like you don't get to do these sorts of human like look at what is lost right um and i do think there's there's a sort of like grief there there's definitely like a mourning of like the loss of being able to have a family, right? I mean, which is ultimately, I think, kind of what Interview with the Vampire is about, which is a really strange thing for kind of vampires to mourn, but, right, it's a, right. It's a thing that they can't sort of have. And so and so I think that there are other, maybe that's also these other feelings for the monster. Like, they're kind of on the outside. They are, mis- sometimes maybe they're just misunderstood. The monster was me all along. Right, 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 right. right. Well, I mean, that's the ultimate thing. Like, I think if you really boil it all down, like, we are always the monsters. I mean, if you you have all of these stories and these sorts of, like, folklore and urban legends, but, like, when you look at some of these, some kind of horror films, it's like, well, or even, like, read a true crime story, there's in some ways nothing that human beings won't do to one another for whatever kind of reasons, whether it is a psychological situation, a chemical imbalance of the brain, some kind of like trauma in their past or whatever. And so I think like the escape of horror allows you again to kind of displace some of that, but 
Yeah, I mean, like, if, if you look at things like fairy tales, they're all about beware of the people really close to you, right? So it's like, it's not the ghost story. It's not, it's it's the people closest to you that p- could probably do you the most harm, which is like the real cautionary tale of those. Right, exactly. Like, you know, the, the kind old lady in the gingerbread house, right? So stuff you in the oven. And <laughs> right, that'll be the exactly. End of, that'll be the end of you. Don't get lost in the woods. Right, exactly. You know? you, we'll never find you again. <laughs> so horror has certainly, like, especially with the dawn of the internet age and mm. all like this widespread availability of like people who with like resources and people writing their own stuff like the proliferation of all this it's certainly going in some interesting ways where do you see like the current trend in horror heading um i mean so you mentioned before paranormal activity and i think that that was kind of a beginning of integrating kind of technology into um horror films i think there was a while that people really were trying to reject it because you kind of had to like have this whole explanation now of why your cell phone didn't work and so it became this like really annoying plot device for writers to kind of work around work around like why is your cell like you have a cell phone a friend said to me recently you know she's only reading mystery novels or like thrillers that happened before cell phones were invented <laughs> right, she right, doesn't right. Read, it spins, like, she doesn't want to read the cliche of the uh of having to deal with like the cell phone things I think there was kind of an embrace of technology as well, or like cautions of the dangers of technology. But I think with the resources, I mean, there's there's just so much you could do. I think of like Krasinski's A Quiet, Pla- Quiet Place, where it's just brilliant, brilliant. Not only are the monsters very creepy, but half of the movie is completely quiet. The, the silence is so unnerving in that and so i think there's a lot like creatively i hope that horror is going in those directions of thinking through like what you can kind of do creatively and i love that sort of you've got this like great protagonist in that who's who is deaf and i don't know i i I think that was a surprising and i haven't seen the second one but i was loved 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 that film i think those continue to be cultural commentary through horror because i can't i think it lends itself to that it can't help it right and maybe with sort of pared down you know resources like you said are available and they're not very expensive i think there's there's some kind of like fun and the lo-fi-ness of it i think uh one one really great film that I loved was that's relatively recent was It Follows which they filmed in Detroit and so like the atmosphere is just like these foreclosed on houses and areas and so that itself is kind of a commentary but then there's also a commentary on sort of like promiscuity because like people are you know are passing on this hauntedness which you know is mapped to kind of like sexually transmitted diseases i think the get out us what what like those films are doing with like cultural commentary you know it's like it's it's incredible so i hope there continues to be sort of a range of diversity in in horror and that we get more voices i don't think horror is not gonna go like it's it's a genre that has persisted and i also hope that people find maybe like their own way into like who maybe aren't weren't interested in horror originally or you know i have a lot of people who are like i'm so too sensitive to that or like that makes me too anxious i hope that they can find something whether it's a monster story classic literature like some stuff that Stephen King writes, you know, that can or they can find something they enjoy because I think it should be for everybody. And uh, I would love for there to be another horror film that wins an Oscar. But I think the direction that it's going is maybe kind of where it has always gone, right? It's just like 
finding ways to tell these stories. I know, like, also it's returning like it always does to the classics. So, like, there's a new Halloween movie out. I haven't seen it. There's a new Scream, I think, that's coming out soon. Sort of, like, the return to these places. I think we get let our nostalgia sometimes get the better of us. So we'll see, like, what those kind of say to us now, however many years later those, those stories are. Uh, but, yeah, as long as our audiences for reading and, and viewing them, they'll be around. Because we've got to have some way right. to work through it. So, And I think that like with the rise of like technology, especially podcasting, for us example, yeah. right? You know, I, I follow the No Sleep podcast. I've followed that for years. Um, great like storytelling, great editing, you know. Um, people are being able to like, submit horror, you know, write their own horror, and like sometimes they're really, like, really good stuff mm-hmm. uh, on Reddit forums and other places where people do. Also, but conversely, I also see that like horror is kind of trending toward uh, technology, right? As technology be feared, sort of like in the Matrix mm-hmm. sense, right? Because now it's being used like you, you never know who might be listening on the other side of that True. microphone or watching, right? Kind of like in the 1984 sense, you know, Big yeah. Brother, but who, who else might be? watching or you know I mean that would make a lot of sense to me to incorporate technology as the sort of um I don't know like black mirror does that a right. lot with yeah, like yeah. you see that of, a like, lot the yeah, cautionary yeah. tale because yeah that's what we're afraid of right now is like who's surveilling me what do people know about me what about my privacy you know so like while it might be great to get you know actual coupons I really like it's also kind of creepy that like when I scan my shopper's card somewhere at you know Harris Teeter corporate they know like exactly which brand of butter that I prefer you know what I mean there is this sort of like really weird I mean and you kind of agree to these terms but it's like yeah so you can certainly see like this mapped all the way out like why that would be very scary for people for right. sure right exactly closing in all around right yeah the loss of privacy the loss of i don't know even anonymity, the, anonymity right? yeah, yeah. yeah. Like your everything is mapped well thank you so much absolutely yeah, yeah. thank you so much for joining us um stay tuned for new episodes every saturday at 7 p.m until then right on <laughs>